Romans chapter 16, verse 17 is where we pick up. It begins with, now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. We'll stop right there for now. You know, if you've been around here, we've been in this long study of the book of Romans. We've been through a lot of doctrinal matters. The last chapters from 12 on have been very instructive, very personal, based on how do we live out grace in the context of church life, church family. He's come through some of that. Chapter 16, a lot of greetings. The first 16 verses of chapter 16, Paul greeted 27 people by name. He's introducing them to Phoebe, who's carrying the letter of Romans from Corinth, the city in southern Greece, to Rome. He sends the letter with this wonderful woman named Phoebe and encourages the church to welcome her, take care of her. And then in the letter, he incorporates 27 people to greet by name. 27 people he knows there in Rome that he says, hey, say hi to this person. We did time together for our faith. How many of you know that brings you closer together, not just when you serve on a mission trip, but when you suffer together with somebody else for the Lord? It draws you close. And so Paul had suffered with these people. He'd labored with some of them. And he says, I want you to to greet them. And the letter could have ended there. I mean, verse 16 said, greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. Amen. Close the books on it. It's done. Let's move on. But Paul is my kind of preacher. He has a hard time finding that ending point, right? He ends his sermon three times. So as he finishes up, he says, oh, I forgot something and I don't have like Word document. I can't cut and paste and put it back in the middle of the transcript. So we'll just add it on here. So that's why verse 17 shows up. He says, now I urge you. Parents, how many of you have urged your children? It's sort of close to a command. I'm urging you strongly to listen to what I'm telling you because it's really important. It'll save your life. It'll keep you out of some trouble. So when Paul says, I'm urging you, I think it's connected to the word urgent. I don't know for sure. I didn't look it up. But if they're not connected, they should be. The word urge and the word urgent. He says, so church in Rome, church in Fluvanna. I'm urging you, what's he urging us? To note those who cause divisions and offenses. I mean, it's almost like I wish we didn't even have to talk about this in church, right? We shouldn't have to talk about division in church, right? I mean, unless it's in the context of doing our math homework, you know, division, subtraction, addition, multiplication, you know, that's not the kind of division that is being talked about here, but it is a personal sort of division. Divisions are uprisings, insurrections. How many of you have been to a church where there's been an uprising over the loud music? It's when a group gets together and they start a movement. We don't like how loud the music is. And they gather together in their group and they start an insurrection. It's a power play. And now all of a sudden, our group has an uprising and we're upset. It could be how brown the carpet is. And it's usually stupid things. But divisions, an uprising, an insurrection. We don't like what the people in charge are doing. And so now we have our group and we're dividing. We're causing a schism. That's divisions. Offenses. Offenses are obstacles. Sometimes people put obstacles in the way for other people, and that causes problems. And Paul says to them, look, if you see people causing division, and by the way, did you notice 
Divisions don't just come out of nowhere. There's a cause. There's always a cause. How many of you have experienced church where there has been divisions? Just raise your hand. Have you experienced that? Look how many of us have. We've all experienced that. And so now we have this instruction from Paul because the church seems to be doing well. Just look down to verse 19 real quickly with me if you would. Verse 19, Paul says, for your obedience has become known to all. So Paul is commending them, saying, look, you guys, everybody knows your faith. Everybody knows your desire as a church to serve the Lord. And I don't want that to get messed up. And I don't want that to get tarnished and tainted. So because of that, because you're doing so well, that's why I have to urge you. That's why I have to tell you there's people that are going to cause divisions. It doesn't just start out of the blue. doesn't just come out of nowhere. Well, where did that come from? There's a source. There's a cause. And sometimes the person who causes division, notice Paul doesn't name them. It's just those people. 27 names, and now we get to divisions and obstacles and scandals and things like that, offenses. And he says, well, there's those people, those sort of people who are causing division. Again, he says to us, when you see people causing division, take note of that. Why? So you can stay away. If someone's destroying the body of Christ, well, it can happen through gossip, can it? How many of you have ever seen a church torn apart because of gossip? Funny story. So I'm in between services having a conversation with somebody. Now, you know, I missed last Sunday because I had a virus. That's why I wasn't here. It was contagious. I didn't feel so great. So I stayed home because I didn't want to infect you lovely people. And you were probably happy that I did that. So in between services, someone says, oh, hey, how's your back? My back's great. Why? I say, I thought you're walking so good. Yeah, why? Well, I heard you had back surgery. Like, what? I, where does that come from? You know, back How do you get from virus to back surgery? But this is the way conversation works. You know, it goes from one place to another place, and then all of a sudden gossip is happening. And someone's saying, well, you don't know what I heard happen here. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And that person, because there's toxicity in their life, they begin to vent to others about what they're unhappy with. And it's just taken as gospel truth. And then the person that hears that goes, really? I didn't know that was happening. You see, by the way, gossip is one way divisions can happen. And notice what Paul says. Look down again at the end of verse 18. He says, they deceive the hearts of the simple. Those that cause divisions deceive the hearts of the simple. If you'd like to, you can circle the word for simple. That doesn't mean ignorant or stupid or dumb. It means naive. It means naive. Naive means that you never bothered to check it out. You just assumed that because they were telling you, and well, they really know what they're talking about. They couldn't possibly have got it wrong. So you just suck it in and take it in. Now they've got you on the team. And now the two of you have to bring a third person on the team. Now you vent to them. Now you gossip to them. By the way, it's still gossip if you tell it to your friends. Just because they're your friends doesn't make it not gossip. If it's not about you and it's not about them and it's running someone else down or, it's, or if saying it could cause people to question integrity and you've never checked it out, then you shouldn't ought to be saying it. Shouldn't ought to be. That's for the English majors in here. It's the hearts of the simple. Not everybody gets deceived. Not everybody gets sidelined by divisions and by things like gossip. 
but people that are simple do, meaning that they're naive. They think that, well, just because I'm in church and the person carries a Bible and they're part of the leadership or whatever the case might be, that they must be telling me the truth. Well, sometimes it's not gossip. Sometimes it's doctrinal. That's what it is for Paul and the group here. Did you see that? He says, cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. In other words, Paul says to them, look, folks in Rome, look, folks in Fluvanna, doctrine is just instruction. You've been instructed. You know about grace. You know about truth. And you have the Bible. Now, they didn't have the Bible. We have the Bible. You can go back and you can check the source. If it's gossip, check the source. If it's doctrinal, sometimes there's people show up in church and they've got some kind of crazy doctrinal thing. You know, you're going to hell if you go to church on Sunday. And they'll pull you aside. And they'll use, did you notice that? They'll deceive the hearts of the simple back there in verse 18. And they'll use smooth words and flattering speech. You see, people that want to cause division, they don't come out and say, hey, come on over here with me because I'd like to start an insurrection in the church. I'd love you to be part of it. Would you sign up for my insurrection? Would you sign up for my coup in the church? They don't say that. They use flattering words. They appeal to your love for yourself. See, they say, oh, you know, I've been watching you and I know how much you really want to serve God. And I know how much you really have a desire to know the truth. But, you know, your pastor, he's leaving out some really important things. And, and I really think you should know these things because now you can really know the Lord more intimately. And it's about some other nonsense. And, but this is the kind of things, that, well, if you don't do this, then I'm not really sure you're, you're even really saved. And you go, really? I, but I want to be. Am I not saved? I, I don't know. See, they deceive you. They use flattering words. They sound real convincing. And they'll flatter you about how smart or how much you really, really want to grow with the Lord. And that's the trap, right? That's the stumble. So anytime somebody comes with doctrine that's contrary to what you've read in the Word of God, don't believe it. They can't point you to Scripture and verse to say what they've said. If they haven't gone to the person the gossip's about to verify it, then don't listen. So there's usually two different approaches to doctrinal differences. One is either legalism, where someone says, well, you know, that's great, but unless you do X, Y, and Z, you can't be saved. Unless you follow these traditions or, or do these things, then you can't be saved. That's one side, legalism. So if someone's trying to bring you back into legalism, that's a problem. The other side is liberalism. Really, God's grace is sufficient. It doesn't really matter how we live. You can live in sin, and, and God's grace is sufficient for that, and God's grace is sufficient for that. But he calls us to confess our sin. So, if someone's telling you, hey, it doesn't matter how we live, that's not what grace is about. And someone's telling you that, well, it's about these legalistic things, these rules you got to follow if you want to be right with Christ. Those are both problems. Those are the two problems you're going to tend to find most often. And so Paul says when you see people causing division, confusing people, rallying people against each other, what does he say to do? Say, well, just hear them out. No, is that what he says? Well, just spend a little time uh, arguing with them. What does he say to do? Church, you can read it right here. He says, avoid them. Do you want to know the amazing thing is that if you could read this in the Greek, you know what you would find out about that word avoid? It means avoid. It really means avoid. So the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, had it right when he said there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. 27 people Paul had embraced. 
They were serving the Lord. They were suffering together. They had a relationship together. But now Paul gets to this part and he says, now there's some people I want you to avoid. But isn't that not loving, Pastor? That's wise. For some of you in your lives, there's people, well, they're toxic. You understand the word avoid, right? If you're heading out from here to Washington, D.C., you're heading out from here to Philadelphia, you know you want to avoid traffic. So you leave at 2 a.m. You know, that's even a trouble sometimes. But you want to avoid traffic. Anybody else want to avoid traffic? I do. You know, we try to time the trip. Last week, I was sick. Had I showed up and said, hey, I got a virus, you would have been glad to avoid me. Why? Because you don't want to be infected with whatever it was that I had. So we understand, don't tell me you don't understand the concept of avoid. As Christians, we understand it's not unloving to avoid toxicity. And sometimes this is the hardest thing to explain to people, that if there's people in your life, maybe you've come out of an addiction background, you've come out of a a certain background, there's still people in your life from that background, and they're toxic. There's drama. You know, I've met people that, You've got saved or they've come to church and their family will try to drag them back down into the pit. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're trying to get clear from that nonsense you grew up with, get clear from that whole mindset, and yet the minute you try to take a step forward, the toxic family is pulling you back down. Can I just tell you, by all the grace of God, avoid them. Avoid those co-workers who just complain about everything and have nothing good to say. Anybody who's trying to tear apart the body of Christ, Avoid them. We know and we understand that there's a time to embrace and there's a time to avoid. And so Paul says, just avoid them. Because you know what? Where there's no kindling, the fire goes out. Here's the problem that Paul shows about them. Verse 18, they might carry a Bible. They might sound like they know what they're talking about. But Paul says, for those who are such, do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not serving God. They may say they're serving God. They may appear to be serving God, but even Satan's ministers can transform themselves into what, church? Ministers of light. Paul says that to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. Sometimes people that work for Satan, they sound really good, really convincing. So he says they're not serving Jesus. Someone that's serving Jesus will not be tearing apart his body. Can we agree on that? If someone is damaging the body, they're working against Jesus. This whole first section Working, serving for Jesus. This next section, not serving Jesus, serving who? Who does it say there? They're not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. But who were they serving? Their own belly. What does that mean? I mean, you understand what Paul is saying. Not their own belly. In other words, they're hungry. Where do I get a hamburger? Not that kind of belly. They're serving their own appetite. They have an appetite to cause trouble. They have an appetite for evil. They have an appetite to have people follow them. It's all about not Jesus. It's about them. Whenever you find a person who's drawing people away to themselves, stay away. It's toxic. And it's contagious. When you get involved with gossip and someone is saying those things, those seeds are being planted. Now all of a sudden there's mistrust in your own mind. And it has an effect on you without you even realizing it. And Paul says, all they're doing, they're only venting. They're serving themselves. All they want to do is get people agreeing with them. All they want to do is get people following them. So he says, avoid them. Why? They use smooth words. 
flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Verse 19, for your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf. But I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. That's an underlining kind of verse. I remember reading this verse for the first time years ago and thinking, you know, that is so wise to say, be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. If you consume more news than you consume the Bible, you're probably wiser about what's evil in the world than what's good. I mean, you can watch the news and you can become an expert on all the problems the world's having. You can get enveloped in government, in conspiracy. There's some dark places on the internet. And you can spend your time knowing and understanding darkness. But how many of you understand that if you spend your time investigating darkness, searching out evil, even because you want to understand it and know it, it's going to affect you. So can I make a suggestion? If you spend more time watching the news than you do in your Bible, you're probably wiser concerning what's evil than you are concerning what's good. Turn off the news, open up your Bible, and that'll make a difference. You can sit there and shout at the TV and shout at the darkness, or you can pick up the Bible and expose yourself to the light. Actually make a difference in the world. So can I tell you, church, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of things to be an expert on, but only in the Word of God will you become an expert in what is good. And that is time well spent. Amen. Are you with me in that? Is that not time well spent? And when you know what's good, it's easy to point out what's evil. And we live in a world that is fascinated by evil, don't we? Okay. Be wise in what is good, simple concerning evil. And here's what happens, church. Verse 20, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Or the word is quickly. Now, any verse that is talking to me about crushing Satan, that appeals to me. Does it appeal to you? Like, I don't like to see Satan win. You see, Satan is smart enough to know that it's much easier to attack the church from the inside than from the outside. So Satan joins the church, and he uses people to do his work to bring division to the wonderful, beautiful body of Christ. And it's just Satan working from the inside. But when we avoid, when we don't entertain, when we shut off, cut down, doing such things, then God says, I will crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet, our feet. That's how it works. Satan's not a problem for us when we do what God said. Satan does not scare me. He's not as powerful as God. Satan can only work when we let him. Church, listen to me. I'm speaking truth to you now. You know it, don't you? Satan only can get a foothold when he uses people as instruments to do his will. If you are a spreader of gossip, if you are a bringer of division, then Satan is using you to divide the body of Christ. And when we shut that down, I like it. Paul seems to refer back to Genesis chapter 3 where the reference is to the seed of the woman Back there, the, the first reference to the coming Christ, that uh, this seed of the woman of Eve that will come, the Satan will, the serpent will bruise her heel, but he will crush Satan's head. Jesus is victorious, right? We know that. But that victory is played out in real time. How does the body stay healthy when we fight off toxins and disease by shutting them down, 
sometimes in a body. Listen, years ago I read about a Brazilian model who had gotten uh, MRSA, which is an antibiotic-resistant disease, and to try to save her life, they started amputating limbs. They had to cut it off to get it away from the body to try to keep the disease from spreading. And so sometimes when disease is spreading, you've got to cut it up, you've got to avoid it so that it doesn't continue spreading in the body. And then the body can heal. So I take a long time to say this because this is really important. I don't like to see Satan tear apart the body of Christ. Do you? Have you seen it before? Can we say, hey, we don't want to see that among us, right? So we got to pay attention because he says, take note of people like that. Get them in your aim. Get them in your scopes. Take note so that you can avoid. Now, again, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. All right. Paul finishes the letter. Not so fast. There's the verse 21. Now Paul sends greetings. Remember, he's writing from the city of Corinth in southern Greece. Sends a letter with Phoebe. Greets all the people in Rome. But Paul's hanging out with some people in the church in Corinth. Who are those people? Well, he says, verse 21, Timothy, who they would have known by reputation or personally. Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius and Jason, Dosipater, my countrymen, greet you. So he greets from Timothy and these guys there in Corinth. And Paul says, hey, these guys say hi to you all in Rome. Timothy, we know. Timothy was Paul's protege in the faith. Some of these other guys, their names show up in various places in various ways in the book of Acts. Jason, he hosted Paul when Paul was coming through Thessalonica, I believe, Acts chapter 17. His house gets attacked because they're looking for Paul. I mean, these people have history. There's people around here in this church that I've been serving the Lord with them for some 17, 18 years. we got history. It's awesome. And I hope that there's some people that you have history with. These are people that Paul has history with, and you can see their names as you go through the Bible in various places. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. What's that all about, Pastor? I thought you said Paul wrote this epistle. Well, in a sense he did. In a sense in that the Holy Spirit gave him the words. But Paul, most people understand, had a pretty bad eye disease. He picked up while he was traveling, maybe in the area of Galatia. It caused him to be nearly blind. And occasionally at the end of his letter, Paul would pick up the pen and say, I, Paul, write these Look at how big the letters are I'm writing with. You can read this. I think it's in the book of Galatians where he ends his letter. He says, look how big the letters are because I've written this with my own hand. So Paul had an eye disease. So when he would write a letter, so to speak, he would actually dictate. And he dictates to this guy named Tertius. And Tertius is going, okay, slow down, Paul. I imagine Paul got excited when he would talk. And Tertius would go, oh, Paul, Paul, slow down. Go back, back up. What was that you said? Okay, um, make sure I got that down. So Tertius... Now make sure he's remembered in history as actually the one who worked alongside of Paul, long hours, writing together as Paul would dictate. Tertius would write down the letter, the words as Paul dictated them. And so now Tertius greets them. Notice his name, by the way. There's Tertius, and if you look down into verse 23, you'll see the name of a guy named Quartus. Do you see his name there? Quartus, look down just a little bit. So just nod your head if you see the name Quartus. Tertius. And Cortus means third and fourth. They're three and four. Thing three and thing four if you're a Dr. Seuss fan. These guys were slaves, either former slaves or currently slaves. And so slaves got a single name. And I guess when you ran out of names, you started with numbers. 
So he was slave number three and slave number four. And here they are in the body of Christ, known by name, by God. So there's Tertius and Quartus Gaius in verse 23. My host and the host of the whole church greet you. So we meet this man named Gaius. His name shows up again in 1 Corinthians. Paul baptized him. Evidently, he gets saved. He gets baptized. And they didn't have church buildings back then. So if you wanted to meet, you had to meet in somebody's house. So Gaius said, ah, you know what? I talked to my wife. She's cool with it. Uh, Let's have church at our house. So not only did Gaius host Paul, he didn't have the best Western to stay in. So he lives with Gaius in Corinth, and the whole church is meeting there in Gaius' house. We meet the next guy, and the man named Erastus, the treasurer of the city, and he greets you. So Erastus had this, he was a public servant. He was the treasurer of the city. That's a cool word, oikonomos, where we get the word economy or economist. He was in charge of the stewardship of the city funds. He worked for the board of supervisors for Corinth. And if you like archaeology, you'll be curious to know that there was an inscription found there in Corinth of a saying that confirmed the existence of this guy named Erastus. Do we have a picture of that? It's an inscription in a piece of pavement that was uncovered by the archaeologist right outside of Corinth. The inscription, that part of it, reads, Erastus, in return for his idolship, that's the title he had, he was the treasurer, laid the pavement at his own expense. Look, the Bible is trustworthy, and every time the archaeologists start digging around, they just confirm what the Bible already said. So there we have an extra-biblical confirmation of the existence of a man named Erastus. So we've got slaves and public servants there working in the city. It seems that Erastus had the job of overseeing the buildings for the city of Corinth. Verse 24, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Thanks for coming. That's the end of the book of Romans. No, it's not the end of the book of Romans. All right. Paul's up to the plate again. We've got verses 25. Now Paul ends the letter. He's probably taken the pen from the hand of Tertius, likely writing this last section with his own hand, this section of glory to God. He says, now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest or made known, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. And then he goes back, you know, carry on from verse 25. He said, now to him, and he gave all that explanation, and now he says, to God, alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever." Amen. There is a lot there to unpack, which I'm not going to take the time to unpack today, but I will say this. Verse 25, Paul says to the church in Rome, to you and I today, he's giving thanks, he's giving glory to God, to him who is able to establish you. Again, if you like words, you can circle that word, establish. The root word there, you can see it, it's the word to be stable. Establish means to be stable, to be fixed to be on solid ground, to be set, fixed in a direction. That's what God is able to do for you. How many of you understand we live in an unstable world? 
do you get a sense that, well, you know, things are improving. We're getting more stable. No. You guys know, shaking their head. Our world is not getting more stable. It is getting less stable. And I see people's lives getting less stable. People you know, people you work with, relatives. But God has the power to establish you, to give you a stable life in the midst of an unstable world. Look, things come and go. We just had a memorial service here yesterday. People come and go. You won't find stability by putting your trust in people. Amen? Not just because they can be mean and ornery and nasty, but because they leave. They die. People leave the earth. So you can't put your trust in people. Things come and go. Possessions come and go. Governments come and go. Churches. Individual bodies come and go. And that's why this is so important because I really would like to live and continue to live a stable life. I don't want to be up and down with the winds of things that come and go in the news and all that. Is it possible? Can it be? You bet it can be. How does a person live a stable life in an unstable world? Paul says it right here. Because of Him. Because of God. Who is what is consistent in the world we live in today? Anything more consistent than God? He is the great I am. Not I was. I might be. Someday I hope to. We'll see what happens. God is the I am. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I was talking in first service about that new sport, uh, paddle boarding. People like stand on these things in the ocean and use their little paddle to kind of move around. And now people are doing yoga. Like they got yoga on paddle boards. What kind of sense does that make? That thing is not stable. You know, I don't even want to picture what would become of me on that thing. Like, bloop, off into the drink. But for some of you, that's what life is like. I'm trying to find stability, but I never feel quite stable. I don't know what my job's going to do. Our health. Can you find stability in your health? You can't. So I'm doing you a favor, church. God's doing you a favor by saying there's one place. It is God and God alone who has the power to give you a stable life. And he does this according to the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ died so you could have a relationship with God. He died, was buried. Third day he rose again and he's ascended to dwell with the Father in heaven. He poured out his spirit for you and I so we could be reconciled to God according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The preaching of Jesus Christ. Not the preaching of good deeds, that's all fine. Not the preaching of be part of the church, that's all good. But our stability is not found in an institution or a government or an education or any of those things. Where is our stability found? Jesus Christ. It's always been and always will be about a relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ.